Welcome to Hungry Authors, the show for aspiring authors who will stop at nothing to accomplish their writing and publishing dreams. We're your hosts, Liz and Ariel, and we're honored that you're here. Let's dive in. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Hungry Authors Podcast. I am solo potting it today. I don't know if that's a verb, but I just made it into one. Um, But I am on my own today. Liz is enjoying a well-deserved vacation. It is her birthday this weekend. Um, I am so excited to be chatting with Dr. Camden Morganti today. Um, We are going to chat all about her new book, which is called Recovering from Purity Culture, Dismantle the Myths, Reject Shame-Based Sexuality, and Move Forward in Your Faith, which is coming from Baker in this fall. So it's publishing around the same time um, as the Hungry Authors book. And Camden and I actually live kind of close to each other. And so we've had a lot of fun meeting in person getting to have dinner, getting to write together and just talk about our, you know, book processes and everything. So Camden, welcome to the Hungry Authors podcast. Thank you, Ariel. I'm so glad y'all asked me just because y'all are like friends of mine now too. And because you've been so helpful to me in this process. So it's great to talk with you about it. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I know it is so much more fun when writer friends get to actually become like real friends in person. Not that we weren't real friends before, but now we're like real, real friends. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so tell us a little bit more about your work and about just the topic of your book. Okay. So as you said, recovering from purity culture, and that's actually the first time I've heard the whole title said out loud like that um, oh. with the subtitle and everything since we um, finalized it. So that was cool to hear. It comes out October 15th right now is the date um, with Baker Books. And, um, and yeah, so that's been the the work of several years of writing online and speaking. Um, and then also my day job, which is a psychologist in private practice. Um, so I'm a therapist by day. And then I write speaking coach online uh, for purity, culture, recovery, and faith. Um, so this book is an outflow of that work that I've been doing for several, several years now. And um, I'm just really excited about it. Like, like many of the listeners, probably writing a book has been a lifelong dream of mine. And when you guys came out with Hungry Authors and that name and the description of that name, I was just like, oh, yes, this is me. Like, I am I am hungry for it. Like, this is this is my dream. This is my goal. And almost to the point where I never thought it would happen. Like, I was just, this is going to happen. It's just a matter of when and how and with who. Um, but, yeah, it's happening this year. That's amazing. And I, I love hearing just how your confidence has grown. And I've definitely seen that you know, in our relationship too, it's been a lot of fun for me to get, you know, your text message updates about like, here comes the book cover and, you know, puzzling through edits and all of this stuff. So where are you currently at in the publishing process? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm working on my developmental edits right now and revisions um, based on my editor's feedback. We just finalized the cover, starting to put together kind of a marketing plan or ideas. Um, So that's where I'm at right now. Yay. Okay. So, and why did you decide to traditionally publish? Because I know even before you got your book deal, when you were still, you know, shopping your proposal and stuff, we had some conversations. So tell me more about like, what was the thought process that went into this decision to pursue traditional publishing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, um, there honestly wasn't another option. Like this is always what I wanted to do. I think anybody who writes a book, that's an amazing and tremendous accomplishment it takes a lot of work and dedication 
Um, so I commend anyone who puts in that work and effort. Um, but for me, traditional publishing just provided this layer of professional vetting and oversight that lends more credibility. And I think um, just what I needed in my profession, like I wanted that credibility and prestige that comes from a traditional publisher. I also wanted an editor who I knew and trusted and I knew her writing style would kind of complement my weaknesses and kind of fill in the gaps there. Um, yeah. So I just felt like a traditional publisher makes it easier for me to also say like, Hey, other people think I'm an expert in this. They say it's worth investing their money into this book. So it makes it almost easier for me to market it and like give me mo that more confidence. Um, so that was the right path for me. Oh, cool. That's, that's actually a really interesting point that I feel like we haven't talked a lot about here on this podcast is just how, you know, yes, it is very validating, but also having that validation actually makes it easier in some ways to market. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but I can definitely see how that makes sense because marketing is such a huge challenge. And like you, like that's the most intimidating part to me for mm -hmm. sure. As, as we stare down the hungry authors publication date coming this fall as well, I'm going, Oh my goodness, I'm going to have to start like talking about this thing more and putting it out there. And that you're, you're right that, you know, being able to say, Hey, look, someone else believed in it first, um, mm -hmm. actually does make it a little easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, it just, it makes me more confident to tell others like, look, Baker books, which is, they said they were the largest independent Christian publisher. Like they believe in me. And yeah. so this book is worth spending your money on hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of traditional publishing, I really want to know Camden, what has surprised you about this process? Like what have you been learning about, you know, just the writing process or the experience of traditional publishing? Yeah. So many things have surprised me, Ariel. Um, and like I said, I've been doing, I've been at this for a few years now. And so when I first started out, I was surprised that I took a platform um, that originally I felt was largely defined by social media numbers. Now I know it's more than that, but, um, but that just surprised me because when I was in school, like all my professors had books. So I just assumed kind of like having my education was enough. Like I didn't know I also needed to like dance on TikTok, um, <laughs> which I've never done. But, um, oh, good. <laughs> but then I realized like those were academic books, like, and this is a general trade book and, and it's a, just a different audience. And um, yeah. And so, yeah, it surprised me like how much the author is expected to wear <clears throat> so many different hats. And I've had to like gain so many skill sets that mm -hmm. I never had, like, I've never taken a business class. I've never done marketing. I've had to learn some graphic design, web design, video editing, SEO, like just so many things that I've been working on the last few years. Um, and even now, as we're starting to talk about a marketing plan for my book, I'm realizing like, wow, the publisher um, expects me to do a lot. Like, and I had heard that, but just like, okay, I'm the one that has to like design my book's website or, mm -hmm. um, you know, they pitched me to some podcasts, but I'm going to do that too. Like just, yeah, there's just a lot on me and that can be a lot when you're already feeling like, well, I'm writing and I'm lending my expertise, you know, to the content of the book, but now I also have to have all these other skills. So some mm -hmm. of that's been intimidating. Some of that's been cool to learn. And then some of it I've outsourced to a virtual assistant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you don't have to, like, you don't have to dance on TikTok and I'm glad <laughs> you haven't, if that's not what you want to do. Um, yeah. You can obviously, but you know, we are 
We are proponents of doing what you enjoy on Instagram. I know Liz and I definitely both feel like we have kind of a love-hate relationship with um, with social media. It's often that way for aspiring authors. And you're right. Publishers do kind of put high expectations on their authors. You have to you know, promote your book more than anyone else. You and and that makes sense to some extent because you know your book better than anyone else and you love your book more than anyone else and you will always be the best person beyond anyone else to mm-hmm. speak for it. Mm-hmm. However, that's not something that a lot of authors are really prepared to do and like you said it does mean learning a lot of new skills um and that can be intimidating and hopefully exciting in the process. Um I know in a conversation with Ann Croker, um, that we it's going to come out soon um, on the podcast. But Anne was really um, impressing upon us that you know to be open and curious to those kinds of possibilities. And I was kind of feeling like this, you know, there's all these things we have to do and all of these expectations, and it's not fun. Um, and she was like, well, you know, could you make it fun? Are there ways that you can be kind of open and curious about the experience and even just look at it like I'm a detective and learning more about this thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not always easy to have that perspective, but it sounds like you have kind of embraced that role wholeheartedly, which I'm I'm glad to hear. Mm-hmm. And I've taken breaks too, like yeah. not posting on social media when I was writing this manuscript, like took a big, big old break from it. Um, and that's just necessary because I'm a a human. And, you know, I have a virtual assistant who just works for me a couple hours a week. So it's not like I have a whole staff that can manage it for me. Yeah. But I think everything they say about platform, as far as like, find what's fun um, Mm -hmm. and find where your readers are and make it a conversation with them. Like that has helped me so much more than like analyzing my um, data, you know, analyzing how many likes this post got and how, Oh, like I was doing that for a while. And I realized like, this is, this has given me flashbacks to when I placed my identity in numbers or in accomplishments or things like that. Like, this is just not good for me. Um, Instead, I'm going to make the goal like authentic connections. And when I started to recognize that, like, um, you know, things would happen in the news or the media, um, like in Christian, you know, media or news. And when I started to recognize like that people were coming to me and like, I want to know what you have to say about this. Have you read this article? Have you seen this video? What do you think? Like that was more meaningful to me than the social media numbers. It was like, they're looking to me as a thought leader. Like They're looking to me and they want to hear what I have to say. And we can engage back and forth with what they think. And um, I think that has been meaningful part of social media. Yeah, well it shows that you're you're building an authentic community and I love that, you know, they're they're giving you more um like more content for that community, right? Like if people send you an article and want to know what you think, that's an a very easy opportunity to talk about it in a more public forum and that will attract even more people to your work. So, it's kind of a virtuous cycle of like when you start dipping into social media and some of these platform building things, in the right way and with the right intentions, it becomes a lot easier. And I think you actually, you know, have, you have more fun with it and and you're more successful at it too. So let's talk about the book itself. Tell Mm -hmm. me more about what purity culture is and what inspired you to want to write this book about that topic. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So purity culture is 
um, the religious movement that was especially prevalent in the 1990s and 2000s when I was growing up and when many of your millennial listeners um, were growing up um, that attempted to persuade young people to abstain from sex until marriage using fear and control uh, and shame as the methods of control. Um, So what inspired me to write it? Like this really came out of my personal experience. This is my story as a person who grew up in purity culture and experienced um, like some trauma to my faith because of it. And then also from my profession, learning that women who, who come from these kinds of really um, traditional religious upbringings can have sexual problems. Um, And I got training in sex therapy in school and I do that now in my career. And um, and just seeing the relational impacts too. So, um, so in the book, I say that purity culture affects your faith, relationships, and sexuality. And those are the three areas that I kind of unpack. Um, and that for some people, it can create even a traumatic response in their body where um, they're left with these long-lasting effects, even 20 or 30 years after high school sex ed or after they made a purity pledge. Um, they're still finding their bodies um, can't turn off those beliefs and those messages. And so when I saw that in my clients, I realized like this is still affecting people. It's not something that we can just talk ourselves out of in our heads. It's something that really needs a holistic mind, body, heart, and soul healing. And so that's what I want to provide in my book. Yeah. And that is so important because, you know, and you and I have had many conversations about, you know, I come from a very similar faith background and upbringing and was, you know, surrounded by purity culture in my, you know, early adulthood and and childhood as well. And those messages, like you said, they definitely leave a long, um, a long mark in people's lives and it can be really hurtful, um, Mm -hmm. for, for a long time and even affect them well into adulthood, um, as I've seen with myself and, and many of my friends too. So I love that you're doing this. And I know part of your book is about these myths around, purity culture. So can you tell us more about like, what are those myths and how are you kind of dismantling them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So yeah, section two of the book is on deconstructing or dismantling the myths. And so I've got a chapter for each of these five myths that I've identified. So um, the first one is the spiritual barometer myth that your virginity or purity is a measure of your spiritual maturity and it gives you worth, identity, and purpose. Um, And so In each chapter for the myths, I have like, I have it set up because of your book mapping class, I have it organized to where I describe what the myth is. And I give examples from books from the purity culture era that like perpetuated this myth. And then I have a section on like um, uncovering the effects. Like, so what does this look like later on in people's faith, sexuality and relationships? How does this affect people? And then the last section is on recovering the truth. So how can we replace that myth with truth? And then I end each chapter with one or two tools um, from drawn from psychological theories and treatment approaches um, that people can use to replace that myth with truth. Um, so I described the first myth. The second myth is um, the fairy tale myth that you'll get a beautiful marriage and spouse if you remain pure. Um, the third one is the flipped switch myth that once you get married, as long as you waited, you'll be able to flip the switch from and sex goes from off limits to being wonderful and amazing right away. Um, the fourth myth is the gatekeepers myth that women are the gatekeepers of sexuality, that they have to um, be the ones that reinforce boundaries before marriage and then give their husband sex after marriage. 
And then the last one is the damaged goods myth that if you do have premarital sex or are sexually abused or something like that, that you're damaged goods and that your worth is diminished because of that, which leads to a lot of shame. Um, so yeah, so that's how I have those, um, that section and those chapters set up. And um, a lot of books have been written about purity culture already. And so in, you know, in the comps section of like my proposal, you're talking about comparable titles and distinguishing yours from theirs. And one of my distinguishing factors is I'm not just describing what the problems of purity culture are. That's a small portion of each of those chapters, but I'm describing like how to get to the truth and then how to reinforce that truth in your body and heart so that you get that embodied experience and holistic change. Yeah. I think one of the things that has impressed me most about your work is this much more holistic perspective. It's not just about, you know, um, like a cognitive approach to understanding and, and just assuming that once you understand, then you will therefore be able to, you know, banish those thoughts from your mind or somehow just magically get over these things. But it really does have to be, like you said, a, an embodied experience of recovery. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I'm, I know I'm really looking forward to learning more about in your book and when it comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned the book mapping masterclass, which you took last year as you were doing the proposal, right? Yeah, I was, I was editing my proposal. Um, this has been a very long process for me. So I um, signed with my agent January of 2021. And I, so I had a full proposal then, but the direction of the book changed quite a bit. And then I started coaching in 2021 and that gave me like really opened my eyes to the need for this holistic experience because like you said, it's not just a mind shift and that's what most of the resources offer. And I also had a baby in early 2022. So all of those things have made this process very long um, for me and uh, yeah, it's taken a lot longer. It's been a long road. Um, So yeah. So when you say I was working on the proposal, probably like the third iteration of it or something. And then we, um, my agent put it out to submission in the spring. And I, and I think I, I signed in like May or June. Yeah. Yeah. I remember we were, we were celebrating at about the same time. Yeah. Um, so tell me more about how the book mapping process kind of helped you figure out the structure, especially like you said, you've got multiple parts to the book. Part Mm -hmm. two has those five myths that you're dismantling. So -hmm. how did you make decisions about what content was going to go where and how you were going to kind of organize, organize all of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the book mapping class, like really helped me see like how to get your reader from here to there, that that is the transformation that you, you call it, that you're taking the reader on. And this made sense to me from like a therapy treatment planning perspective. Cause like in therapy, we have overall goals for the client that we want, want them to reach by the time they finish therapy with us. But then we also have objectives we want them to reach along the way. And then we have like skills and interventions we're going to teach them in order to reach those objectives. So I kind of like thought of it in those terms because that's what I was familiar with. Um, It helped me to see that like each chapter has that little big idea, which is like the objective that I'm trying to communicate to my reader. And that all of those add up to the book's big idea, which for me is that integrated um, healing from the trauma of purity culture. And so in each chapter, offering readers those skills and tools that I do in therapy and pulling them from that practice um, just like allowed me to kind of integrate like my treatment planning brain with the book mapping process. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love also hearing about kind of the intentionality with which you planned each chapter, especially with all of the tools and stuff, because I think 
you know, obviously your book is a prescriptive nonfiction book, but even within, and and by that, I mean, you know, your goal is to teach the reader something. Your goal is to accomplish a transformation in the reader, like you said, but even within prescriptive nonfiction, there can be a really great range between a prescriptive nonfiction book that is more narrative driven and story driven and something that is a little bit more practical and um, tool-based and really action-oriented. And it sounds like your book has a nice balance between those two things. And obviously, you know, coming from your experience as a psychologist, you have a lot of actual, you know, therapy tools that you can offer readers. How, how, how did you think about integrating some of the more interactive pieces of the book? Mm-hmm. Well, you guys really broke it down on the concrete steps as far as like how to organize each chapter and the menu of chapter pieces. So like that helped me think of like, okay, each chapter, I want to have a story. And often that was either my personal experience or my clients, or sometimes like a Christian celebrity figure. Um, and then like, you want to have a key idea for each chapter, or a couple of them, and then including those interactive elements. So I have reflection questions and then I have some charts, a couple of charts or tables, but then those exercises at the end of each chapter. Um, So, and with those, it was really like, how do I communicate some of these more complex psychological concepts to, um, you know, just to to the everyday reader? And how do I make this accessible to them and understandable and applicable to them? As well as I also have to pay attention to like my ethics as a therapist, like not wanting to traumatize or trigger or overwhelm the reader. Um, So we've got a lot of like caveats and resources for that and, um, and support that we try to offer the reader in the book. Um, But also just offering them something that they haven't been able to get anywhere else um, that they're not going to get from reading a memoir about someone's purity culture experience, which is definitely valuable. And um, right. yeah, so that that's a valuable thing to read that first person account, but they're not necessarily going to get those tools there. So that was something unique to offer. Right. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And, you know, all of the, I, I have read some of the purity, other purity culture books too. And you're right that what you're offering does go a little bit deeper. So how have you been using your book map since then, so you you know you kind of created the the plan to begin with. You wrote your or you know revised your proposal, and then you had to start writing the manuscript. How like did your book map kind of help in that process, or how much did your book map change throughout the writing process? Yeah, the overall outline it didn't change a ton. Like how I organized the three sections of the book and then the chapter order. Um, it really helped the most with within each chapter. And I'll show an example of, um, I just had like a plain piece of computer paper with sticky notes all over it. And they're highlighted with like, okay, here's my key idea. Here's my interactive element. Here's my reflection question. Here's the stories I'm going to use. And so that was helpful to just brain dump on the post-it notes and then to organize what chapter they needed to be in and then what order within the chapter. Um, So that's, that's what helped the most. Like, And then you always encourage me to like, go back to what's your chapter's main idea and how am I getting the reader to, to her transformation at the end? Um, How is this chapter and this main idea contributing to that overall transformation? So that was a very good guideline to keep in mind. Good. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad. I know. I think that's where I see the breakthroughs coming in for most authors. And that's where I see them starting to kind of push through, you know, feelings of writer's block. Um, is a lot of authors come to me and say, like, I, I had this plan and now I feel like I'm 
kind of losing sight. And the thing we always go back to is like, okay, well, what's your objective for this chapter? What do you want the reader to know? Okay. Now, how do we, how do we prove that to them? How do we make that case? Um, so I'm really glad to hear that that particularly was, was really helpful for you. And then what about the editing process? Cause I know you, you like you're in developmental edits right now. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I'm going to add to your editor is Stephanie Duncan Smith, who we also had on the podcast um, in season one, and who is also the editor for um, our friend Krista Hardin's book too, which came out recently. So we've got lots of, you know, Baker representation on the podcast, which is kind of fun. But how has it, you know, helped um, throughout this editing process too? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm so I got Stephanie's um, first round of edits back and I'm working on getting mine back to her within the next week. And I think what struck me the most is like that there weren't as many um, edits to the overall organization of the book as I thought. Of course, she had of course, she had edits, <laughs> but not like to this chapter needs to combine with this one or this one needs to move here or this section belongs here, like not big things like that. And so that was very reassuring that my book map helped to give me the foundation I needed. And it's hopefully going to save me a lot of time because the edits are like smaller things, or they're like refining my arguments in certain places, or she wanted a couple more examples or stories here and there, um, you know, things like that, rather than like big picture things, like you're missing a whole chapter. Um, right. So that has made the editing process easier, I think. If this book mapping process sounds like exactly what you need to finally write your nonfiction book, you're in luck. We've got a cohort course running in February to teach you the hidden process behind all of your favorite nonfiction books. Book mapping is the invisible matrix that makes books work. We're going to teach you how to see it and how to replicate it for your own book. In four 90-minute live sessions with two Q&As, we'll help you nail your big idea, decide the right genre, map your book's transformation, and outline your entire book chapter by chapter. We've also got a library of sample book maps of best-selling nonfiction books to show you exactly how it's done. By the end of our four weeks together, you'll have a plan to finally write your book. Go to mapyourbook.com to learn more and sign up to join us in February. As an editor, it's always a lot more fun too when you can, like when you see the intentionality with which an author has planned the structure of their book. And then as an editor, you can go so much deeper to help them you know, really refine the the fine details because that's where the book really starts to sing is in like all of those amazing, you know, one-liners that people are going to highlight and share on social media. And that's what, you know, the kind of the end result of all of that hard work is you getting to really focus on making those kinds of things better. And then I think that's kind of where the magic comes in and is going to make your book so much more shareable and exciting and and beautiful for people to read. How have you been like taking care of yourself throughout this process? That's something we don't talk a lot about, but I feel like as a psychologist, you probably have been pretty mindful of, and I know we've had some conversations about that and just kind of balancing writing with childcare and, and all of yeah. that. So how, how have you been doing? <laughs> well, um, after I signed the book contract, I had six months to write it. And so, um, I work at my private practice three, about three days a week. And so that gives me one to two days a week to devote to writing. Um, in addition to my, like my children and th- other things. Um, so I started devoting more time to that, uh, especially as I got closer to the deadline and I pulled a little bit back on my private practice. So I was thankful to be able to do that. 
Um, and it was a lot of just um, tiger time is what one expert calls it, like just like blocked out time. And I'm really going to focus um, from nine to four, you know, to two days a week usually. Um, and at one point I had to stop taking on coaching clients because I was kind of scheduling those in on those days. And that was just interrupting the middle of the day, you know, and I just wanted to be able to flow and focus. Um, but as far as like how I'm taking care of myself, well, the, the time that my editor had, it was a nice break. <laughs> you know, I was able to like <laughs> yeah. go to, go do yoga, get my nails done, or like just have more days with my kids. Like, so that was really nice. Um, but in the everyday times, I still make time for doing things like yoga. I still um, make time for my family. I take the weekends off. I don't work on the weekends. Um, And I'm not one of those people that can wake up early or work late into the night. Like that just doesn't work for me. So I know some working parents have to do that. They have to wake up at 5 a.m. or they have to work till midnight or they work on the weekends. And um, because of my work schedule, I don't have to do that. And that just doesn't work for like just my body sleep needs and things like that. So um. But one thing that's been very important to me is grounding myself in my real life. Um, you know, I don't diminish the work that I'm doing online and the connections that I've made, the friendships that I made, because those have been really meaningful. But having in real life and face-to-face friendships and conversations and just, again, that those embodied interactions with, like, my kids is very grounding for me. Because, like, my kids don't know what I'm doing. You know, I, my, my five-year-old does, we'll talk about mommy's writing a book. She yeah. does what an author is and she's, she's excited about that. But yet um, they, and my husband and like my family, they don't care about the book sales or the critiques of the book or those kind of things. Like, so that's very grounding to me that like, these are relationships that I can come back to when I'm too stuck in my head about the book, or especially when it comes out, um, you know, I'm writing about a controversial topic. I'm writing about religion and sex. You're not supposed to talk about those things. And so, uh, and I'm very sensitive to criticism and, um, and to, yeah, feeling that, that backlash or that critique. And I know I will get some of that. And so, um, definitely working on like, let's just ground back to real life and take, take walks with my husband and play with my kids are, are ways to take care of myself in that. I love that. I think that is incredibly important for all writers to just remain really grounded in real life because it is easy to get caught up in, especially when you are trying to build a platform and you're trying to accomplish something. Like a lot of the, our listeners are, they're in kind of the hustle stage. They're in the, you know, I've got to grow my platform and I've got to post on social media so many times a week or month or whatever. And I've got to write my Substack newsletter and I've got to get this proposal done. And they're in a very hustle mindset a lot of the time. And I think it is easy to lose sight of the the presence that you need in, you know, in other aspects of your life and how important it is to stay grounded in those areas because um, otherwise it just feels exhausting all the time. And we just can't None of us have the capacity to be on like that as mm-hmm. writers, no matter you know how much we want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in, in some ways, it feels like the opposite of a hungry author to take breaks. And yet, I think you have to in order to sustain yourself for the times when you are working really hard. Yeah, and that's all about pacing to me, um, so that I don't burn out. Um, and one practice that I learned in other areas of life that's been helpful here is the practice of celebration too, because 
like when I was in grad school, I, I was in school for five years to get my doctorate plus the four years for undergrad. And it was easy to be like, well, I'll celebrate when I get that degree. But it was like, that's five years away. Like I need to have milestones along the way that I can celebrate and I can pause and I can rest and I can really be mindful of what I've accomplished and, and be proud of that. So I've tried to do that with here too. Like, I'm not just going to celebrate when the book comes out and I hold it in my hand. Of course, that will be a big moment, but like my husband and I celebrated by taking a little weekend trip when I turned in the first full draft of my manuscript. And then like probably when I turn in like the final um, manuscript, we'll do something else to celebrate and just, and then after the book comes out, um, we'll do something then too. So just, yeah. So just having milestones along the way that I can recognize and that helps me with pacing myself too. Um, And not putting my value or worth in this, like, just like I was talking about purity culture taught me to put my worth and value in virginity. And I dismantle that myth in the book of how that's not, um, that's not the truth. Like I've always struggled with putting my worth and my value, my accomplishments. And that's very easy to do when you're in a doctoral program. And when you're just a high achiever type person that that is very driven, um, but not putting my worth in having a published book or how much it sales, um, or sells like just, I think my, my editor, Stephanie, suggested, like, make your goal something that's within your control, which is advice I tell my clients. So I need to take that myself. Like, I can't mm-hmm. control sales, really. I can hopefully influence them or encourage them, but I can't control that. So I'm not going to set my goal of success is I sell X number of copies. My definition of success is going to be writing um, my story with integrity, writing my book with integrity and with um, the healing of my readers in mind. And that really should be the goal for all of us. So I appreciate that. And it seems like you, because I know I know that you know about self-efficacy and you understand that that concept, but I also love the way that you are practicing really intentional celebration as a way to build your self-efficacy, right? Like your belief in your own ability to accomplish this goal. Um, how are you thinking about, and and in some ways I I try to help authors understand, especially prescriptive nonfiction authors, that when you are writing a book where you're trying to accomplish your reader's transformation, your job all along the way is to build their self-efficacy too, their self-efficacy and their confidence that they can do the thing that you're asking them to do. Mm. I'm just curious if that factored into your thinking as you were writing the book too, because I know like you're so thoughtful in everything you do and in every word you write. So how is that kind of playing into your process? Yeah, I hadn't really thought of that. Um, specifically, um, Ariel. So that's, that's good to, to reflect on now. But I think how I've tried to do that is in the stories that I tell of like, here's this, this client, or here's my story, or here's this example of how we were really struggling in this area. And just, and some of my clients struggling for decades. Um, and here's how they were able to overcome it. So that can, I think, instill some hope and some confidence in the reader. Um, and I really see myself as like, Um, you know, I use the term, like we're finding a path forward and that I'm walking with the reader on that path kind of as a guide, but also a little bit as a fellow traveler, because I share some of my story and, um, and say that I, you know, I, I don't have it all figured out. Like that healing is a process and a journey. And we don't have a place that we've arrived where we say like, I've completely healed my faith or I've completely healed my sexuality from purity culture that it's, it's always, um, 
in process. So I think viewing myself as that like gentle guide and fellow traveler can help maybe instill some self-efficacy in the reader too, that they're not alone and that I'm doing this with them. Yeah, totally. I think that definitely, definitely comes through and I'm just so excited for your book to come out. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. So where can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Um, and you know, how, how can they follow along the rest of your journey as you look forward to your book publishing in October? Yeah. Um, my website, drcamden.com. And then I'm on social media as Dr. Camden. So that's pretty easy to find me. Um, I have a free quiz on my website called which purity culture myth affects you. Mm-hmm. So that's those five myths that we talked about. And have you taken this quiz, Ariel? Um, I don't I think, think I did. have, but I, okay. I mean, of the five, I think the gatekeeper myth really stuck out to me. And then the damaged goods myth as well, for sure. Those, I, yeah, those definitely stand out to me as like, Ooh, that hits hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll have to go and take it if you, okay. if you haven't already, but, um, but yeah, so that's a free quiz available on my website. And that also gets you signed up for my newsletter where I share like once or twice a month resources and, um, writings. Um, and then I also offer coaching um, online. So if, if people are really resonating with what they hear and they want to work with me before the book comes out in October, that's an option. And you can find out about that on my website too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. We'll include those links in the show notes and we can't wait for your book. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you're a hungry author and you want to learn more about our community and courses, head over to hungryauthors.com. Remember, you have a story and a message worth sharing. And if you've got the hunger, you can make it happen.